Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and today's guest is Harriet Evans, novelist. Welcome everyone to the London Library on this rather rainy day. Today's guest is Harriet Evans, best-selling author. Harriet, welcome to the London Library. Thank you so much for having me. I guess you know the library quite well already. You're a member of the library and you spend quite a lot of time here, I think, in in your work. I do. I joined um, 10 years ago. I just left work to start writing full time and I was finding working at home really hard. I mean, I did have a kind of period of anxiety and depression for about a year because it's just being on your own is and being a writer is a really weird job to have. And my boyfriend suggested the library and it was, yeah, it was like sort of coming home. It was just, it's been without a doubt the biggest influence on my writing because it's given me the freedom to feel okay about exploring wider horizons and and trying new things in my books and I am immensely grateful to it. Well you've written 11 books Mm -hmm. and you've got a new book out The Garden of the Lost and Found. It is it's out in paperback in September and it's out in hardback at the moment and yeah I've been thrilled with what people have said about it About two months, three months after the books first come out, you get a tiny bit of perspective on whether you can stand to even think about it or not. And sometimes I've written 11 books. Sometimes there's been moments and you think that book wasn't quite the book I wanted it to be. Then you don't know till it's all over. It's impossible to write the book you want to write. And it's impossible to write a better book every time. This is something authors beat themselves up about all the time. But when I was an editor, my boss said to me once... You know, we were talking about an author who just delivered a not very good book. She said, but they don't always write a better book. You write a really brilliant book, then you'll write, you know, another book, and then you'll write a fantastic book, and then you'll write a book which will be the classic by which you remember, then you'll write a really terrible book, you know. And we can argue or discuss what those criteria are, but um, it's more the book that you had in your mind, which is like this kind of shimmering city on a hill. Have you managed to fulfil that and does it work as a book? And three months, well, I would say this because I want people to go and buy it, but like three months, two months after it's come out, I realise, yeah, I am really, I'm just really proud of it. And that's quite, oh, that's quite a big thing to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a big commercial success as well. But how, how important is that to you? I know you've had lots of successful books before, but is, is it is it as much the feeling of having produced the book that you wanted to write? Than, have, than seeing it at the top of the charts? Yes. Um, it's that I have always been a reader of and passionate advocate for what's called commercial fiction without really realising it. My dad worked in publishing many years ago and he worked with people like Jack Higgins and um, John le Carre and David Niven and he worked at Coronet in the 70s and my mum until she retired published Jilly Cooper and Joanna Trollope and Sophie Kinsella and loads of other really great authors but I have always been a massive 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 bookworm and the books I grew up reading and the books that really responded to me as we uh, I really responded to as we may see are ones that aren't uh, my taste is not kind of super literary And I don't have any interest in winning the Booker Prize. I have always wanted to write the book that you see in Gatwick Airport um, when your kids are bothering you and you're about to fly off on, on holiday for two weeks and you have five seconds to pick that book. Now, it's the publisher's job 
to make sure that book looks appealing and that it's positioned at the front of the sh- shop where people can see it in the first place. But it's my job to make sure that book is really damn good. Let's start looking at the list of books you've selected for us, which are absolutely fantastic. And we've we've fished out a few of them here to have on the table as we as we talk about them. I guess with the first choice, we're going back to, to your youth and um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, a favourite for many of us. Tell us a bit about that and why that's your favourite. Well, my daughter has just read it. She's seven and she read it because I kept saying, read this, read this. And she really liked it, but I reread bits of it with her and then started rereading and I'm now rereading the whole series. And it was really weird. I don't know if you have this with books you haven't read for a long time or a TV series or just some reminder of the past. You've stored it in the back of your mind somewhere and it's only when you revisit it you see how absolutely essential it was to your to your life how obsessed you were with it how much better you know it than you remember and I started reading it and it's extraordinary how much of it's gone in and how very important those books were for me and the main thing about them is this idea of world building like I am obsessed with the world you enter into I write a lot about houses a specific house and I always get a pop-up book from a children's art shop and fill it full of like material that might be on the curtains or what flowers it have in the gardens or what the style of design is or whatever because the world that I'm building has to be completely realistic and the thing about Narnia is it's it's so well done and he's in such total control of it and when you're reading an author who is in total control of their material it's it's exhilarating and the way C.S. Lewis pulls back and occasionally says well I will tell you this uh, I and I, I think if this happened today it would be a jolly good thing he just occasionally lets you know the authorial voice is still there which even more lets you know that this is a man who knows that this world is true and the way in the first chapter you go from these children four children being evacuated to stay in this house in the middle of nowhere with this strange man and then playing hide and seek a little girl going into a wardrobe going to the back of that wardrobe and then entering into another world that is done in the first chapter and I take ages to get going my books are way too long that is storytelling man Mm. that is just so great and I used to spend ages like writing my own versions of Care Paravel, the palace that they live on and that who'd be there. And I now, as a grown-up, really obsessed with Game of Thrones. And I was just telling you before the podcast started, I have a life-size cardboard cutout of Jon Snow at home, which will mean nothing to anyone who doesn't like Game of Thrones. And I realised, and realised as I was rereading Nine the Witch in the Wardrobe, that entirely comes from that, that world of fantasy that has girls in it, so you respond to them. Not that I love Dungeons and Dragons, the board game. But I'm not into a lot of other fantasy. I can't get on with Ursula Le Guin and a lot of other people. I don't know why, but for some reason, that world and and what it it does and the stories that they have and how it, most importantly, the children are in control. There are no adults saying, "Don't do this, don't do that." The children uh, make their own decisions, and things happen to them, and they're seen as valid people. It's just, oh, they're they're wonderful. And Lucy Mangan writes really brilliantly about this in Bookworm. But you know, the big thing people always say about Lewis now is, "Oh, but it's all a metaphor, and it's just bashing you over the head with Christianity." I think you can take that too seriously. I really don't think it does. I mean, when you when you look for it, it does. But when you don't know that, you're like, "Oh, wow, these books are good." I didn't go, "Wow, this makes me want to search for a higher faith." It just didn't, you know, have that effect on me. Um, yeah, I, I'm just so enjoying rereading them as well. Here's uh, here's our copy, the library's copy of *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. Which, is which gorgeous. it's nice to see that it's been borrowed on a re- very regular basis, oh. which is great. 
And some lovely illustrations yeah. by Pauline Baines. I mean, and that's the thing. The Pauline Baines illustrations are just some of the best drawings for children that there are. They are so amazing. All the lines are very neat. The attention to details, lovely. Oh, but also she manages to do this thing of normal children wearing shorts and tweed skirts and this fantasy castle by the sea. Yes. That is a really hard thing to put, pull off. And some of the later books she's being asked to do quite a lot. Oh, these are gorgeous. God, this is lovely. I might take that out after you. you. Borrow that, absolutely. <laughs> be our guest. So, so was your childhood like the children in Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? Did you get to explore and have adventures growing up? Well, I grew up in Chiswick, well-known wilderness of... Um, and then I went to school in Ealing. I mean, wow. Um, exotic hinterlands. Um, well, not really. The thing that's really important for me is I grew up knowing I was allowed to be a big reader and an editor and a writer. I knew that was something people did. It just wasn't that weird a job. And I always think of it as the kind of Billy Elliot thing that you, a lot of children don't think reading's for them. A lot of children don't think libraries are them. A lot of adults don't think that. And I do... I have done lots of work with literacy charities and volunteered to read in schools because I grew up thinking that. And that's fine if you choose not to accept that, if you go, books aren't for me. But a lot of children just don't think they're allowed to have that. Um, and that is a great tragedy, and especially with the libraries closing down. You know, Alan Bennett said it was child abuse. It is actually child abuse to d deprive a child of a library that they can walk to that's 100 yards away that might be the thing that changes that child's life, that gives them this thread that they discover this love of learning, to shut that off from them. That's always just been such a central part of my life, but I knew I was allowed to have it. Mm. And and at school, was it encouraged? You were a heavy reader of books. Is that something that was encouraged at school as well? Did you see other kids reading a lot or did you feel that you were unlike others if you were reading a lot? No, not really. I think everyone, I think everyone read quite a lot. And, but I read more than them. I was quite sort of, I mean, when I was a teenager... I was quite moody and in my room a lot and I'd read the Foresight Saga over one summer and I wrote a lot of really bad poetry. But I think it sort of hooked in and I thought it was only me. I mean, I did really think I was the only one who went through all of this, thus le leading to my later career as an author who believes she's the only one who's going through any of this. No, not true. Um, all authors think exactly the same things, it's just they're all in rooms by themselves. <laughs> and that's interesting, I think, about people tell me who write at the library, they're... It's obviously a choice between for some of them between writing here or writing at home in a more yeah. solitary yeah. way. And and yes, it's very quiet and you can um, screw yourself away in a corner yeah, yeah, of the yeah. library. But equally, yeah. you can be in a room with lots of other people yeah. doing the same thing. Well, there's, you know, the new rooms up at the top. There's lots of people who, who work there and they're at tables happily together. And it's like uh, and there are desks where you can be kind of quite near the lift or quite near a staircase. But it's like, that's for me a bit like people who go to cafes and listen to music while they're writing. I need to have earplugs on. Mm. I need to be in the furthest place. The internet has to be off. I am furious if some person comes up and says, excuse me, could you tell me where Abyssinian relief architecture is? I need total. <laughs> I squirrel myself away in like the most, the furthest, furthest right, corner. Because yes. I'm very easily distracted and it has to be no, no stimulation <laughs> whatsoever because I'm just looking for an excuse. Um, and then I'll walk up to get a coffee and I'll peer through the doors where you can see the desks um, where everyone's sitting. And I'm quite often going to get a coffee in the hopes that I'll bump into someone I know and I can have a chat. Right, yes. Because everyone at the library is very friendly and nice. 
and I see all these people tapping away and people chatting and I think how, how can you do that I can't you know I can't do that but it, yeah it is horses for courses well let's move on to your second choice so the secret diary of Adrian Mole age 13 and three quarters tell us about that I adored this book because I'd never read anything like it. And I don't know if you remember the paperback edition and those very iconic um, illustrations. Mm, I do. Um, but it looked a bit like a children's book and was kind of published a little bit like that. And, I've, and it's sort of somewhere in between. And it is a comic classic, an English comic classic, along with like Three Men in a Boat, Lucky Jim, you know. Um, and... I read it and didn't understand a lot of it because a lot of it's quite rude and a lot of it's about marriages breaking up or postnatal depression or people like really dodgy neighbours doing things or racism. There was a lot of kind of terms I didn't understand, but I just loved him. And he has that thing like David Brent in The Office um, and like a lot of really important, like Bridget Jones, actually, that you know he's... Well, not like Bridget Jones, because she's quite sympathetic, but David Brent's a good comparison. You know he's a real plank, but you really <laughs> identify with him. You just, you really, and actually he's he's lovely. And I was, when I was an editor later, I was lucky enough to work with Sue Townsend. And she was a much older woman, not a teenage boy, but quite a lot of him in her. And that's why she said of Adrian Molina, and that's why... You know, he was so relatable, she said, because he's we've all got a bit of Adrian Mole in us. We all, you know, one of my favourite lines is I have a problem. I'm an intellectual, but at the same time, I'm not very clever. <laughs> you know, we all want to sort of be seen as, you know, um, like really amazingly erudite and complex. And we're not. And just the little details of suburban British life, which relate to all our lives and the way that I reread it now and it makes me absolutely scream with laughter and my personal taste for books that for novels that I love most are quite big complex in terms of characters and generations books and I try and more and more write those kinds of books but in real life I like making people laugh and I like talking loads and I like and my books aren't super funny and it's funny to reaccess that to just remember like they are they are screamingly funny, the diaries. They're just so brilliant. But at the same time, they're really profound about family and and getting older and um marriages and things. And the character of his mother, who really is Sue, who, you know, goes into hospital to have the child who's someone else's child, and she reads memoirs of a fox hunting man. She's constantly chain smoking. She's just a problematic mother. You don't meet problematic mothers in in fiction. You're constantly being told you have to be perfect, 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 perfect. And she's just very flawed and great. And she was absolutely flipping brilliant. Um, not that interested in housework, that kind of thing. And I think that's why also I loved it. Because quite a lot of the mothers you meet in children's fiction are very... Dip, 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 dip. Come in, dear. You know, here's an apron, here's some fresh scones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that must have been um, quite a thing to have, have read the book in in your teenage years was it and, no uh, I was like nine oh you were ten. nine yeah yeah I mean I shouldn't have, a lot of it went whoosh, you know <laughs> but to have to, to have read it then and then to find yourself working yeah. with Sue Townsend yeah yeah how amazing it was amazing it's the greatest experience of my working life she profoundly changed the way I think about everything she's very 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 wise kind woman and a lot of the authors I've worked with have been I, w I also worked with Penny Vincenzi, who I edited, who was one of my favourite people ever, who sadly died last year. And she had this thing 
that she wrote in a column once when she said, I always try to be a radiator, not a drain. And I think what makes you a really great writer is being a radiator, like being really interested in other people. And Sue was incredibly interested in everyone. And she took as much interest in me as she would have done a, a very important person at the company. And we, we got on really well. But she was so kind and she was so funny all the time. And she was authentic. And I think that's the other thing. You meet a lot of authors who don't quite know when you're a publisher, who don't know how to present themselves. Sue was completely authentic. I loved her. She was just, she was wonderful. You talk about the depiction of Adrian Mole's mother as yeah. being sort of slightly warts and all. Yeah. Um, do you think it's, and, and, and the case that that, that, that isn't so common. Yeah. Um, do you think that is a, has been an issue for women to see constantly be presented, seeing mothers and wives being presented in a sort of a perfect way um, and that there should be more depictions of, of women in a more realistic way? It's just uh, um, it's the, the idea of the other, that if you grow up always reading the vast majority of books by men, TV shows written by men, directed by men, films conceived, written, directed by men, the way that women are shown is not truthful to how they really are. And I didn't really... Re- not all, I mean, they may have tried perfectly well, but if you look at something like Bodyguard, that TV series was huge last year... Mm-hmm. All the women in it are just massive cliches to me. The wife is a harassed wife with a messy ponytail and a big fluffy dre- dressing gown. You can see the direction written. And she's not real. She's absolutely not real. That you know, there are loads of Keely Hawes is not real. And when you look at Killing Eve, even though that is bonkers, you're like, yeah, I know you. I know you. I just get you. And I didn't realise this till I grew up, but I really loved Cagney and Lacey. I really loved Wonder Woman. And my favourite sitcom was The Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. And I loved Dorothy L. Sayers. And I instinctively, like, I think, must have gone for... I loved Madonna, because Madonna was a spot on the blank canvas if you were a teenage girl. You want to find people who see, who can give you a version of the world you respond to. And it's not like, I'm not interested in what boys think. Um, it's more, oh, you're wired the same way as me. So I instinctively walk towards that. Mm. So I'm watching the wardrobe you can love, but um, Susan and Lucy aren't, you know... They're not kind of super realistic. Lucy's great, actually. But there's no one. If you look at that book, think of who's in it, who's female, the white witch. You know, they're just always kind of witches. <laughs> and um, I think that's partly why, without realising it, you walk towards that. You know, you're kind of intrigued by it. Mm. Well, there's a strong central female character in your next book, uh, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about why you've selected that one. I read Gone with the Wind when I was about 14 over the summer. It ruled my life. I could not believe how gripped I was by it. I had never read anything like it. I'd never entered into a world like it. And I didn't know anything about the Civil War. I didn't know anything about that kind of time in America, because you're not taught it in school. But also... It's a totally gripping, gripping, gripping book. And I'd never really read a book that was that big and massive in its themes and its sprawling timescale. And it's a really interesting one for me because I would not now recommend that book to anyone because when I reread it, and I've read it umpteen times, I became obsessed with it. It is so racist. And I think I don't, I don't think books should be banned. I don't particularly think anyone should be reading Lolita because it's kind of horrible. But... 
That does not mean you should ban a litre. I really don't think people should be reading Gone with the Wind. A, it's a massive apology for slavery, but also super sentimental about it. It's written by a, a daughter of the Confederacy, which was the organisation that sort of said, hey, the Civil War... I mean, those Yankees are pretty horrible to those poor Southerners who are just trying to make an honest living through slaves. And all the slaves are really like, oh, I really miss having the security of slavery. Why have you set me free? But also there's a quite long section when the dashing, kind, daring members of the Ku Klux Klan are trying to avenge these awful people who you know, are trying to upend their civil rights down south. And so it's a really interesting one. You know, talking about revisiting The Lion, mm. the Witch and the mm. Wardrobe and finding it to still be so wonderful, even if... C.S. Lewis is a little bit dated and a lot of books you reread and you're like yeah that's just as wonderful as I remember it this is really funny because I heard someone talking about it on the radio a couple of years ago and they didn't mention this at all and I was like how can you reread that book and not have really massive and I'm a white middle class person from West London this stuff should affect us all and it should all be stuff you, you think about um, it's also I think if you read it and it makes an apology for it it goes in a little bit and I don't I just don't it's really interesting sort of thinking about it but it, it did help me a lot because I became obsessed with the book I became obsessed with the film I watched the film over and over again I read every biography of Vivian Lee I could get my hands on I became obsessed with Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier then I found out all about Oscar winning films the director I knew everything the director. when you're a teenager your mind is so obsessive it's looking for little rivulets like when the tide's coming in, to go into. So I knew every other film that had been out in 1939. I knew the whole series of who'd been the director on the film. It took almost two years to make. And I then became obsessed with films and old films. And that gave me just extra knowledge. I wrote a book about a film star that then went back into the golden age of Hollywood about eight years ago. And I needed to do not that much research because I'd been so... This book had then led on to that stuff. It's much like my last, the book that's just out, The Garden of Lost and Found, I was obsessed with the Pre-Raphaelites when I did History of Our A-Level. I found them completely. I mean, they're so garish and hilarious and it's like a turbulent soap opera. I was so into them and their paintings. And I made him a sort of Pre-Raphaelite, more Lord leighton but I needed to do not that much research because it had gone in at this formative time of your brain where you do just hold on to stuff. You know, I forgot the word for tree when my daughter was six months old because I was so tired. But I could tell you the date of the key pre-Raphaelite paintings down, you know, and what other films were nominated for Best Film in the Year, Gone with the Wind won. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really grateful to, to it for that reason. But I do say, I mean, it's odd to have a book that you are talking about in this way mm-hmm. and that you then mm-hmm. say, I would advise you not really to read it. <laughs> wanted to just pick up on something you were saying there about how you're obsessive and meticulous and although in some cases you've had the background knowledge you haven't needed to research quite so much because you've already known known about it but in general do you find yourself uh, researching your your topics in a lot of detail before you write about them I, in the last four or five books, have found that to be the case. Yeah, my, my books were a bit more chick-litty when I started out, but they always had a theme of kind of where the parents... I'm never interested in books where you only meet the heroine or the hero. You, I always want to know, well, what, you, what were their parents like or where do they come from, how did they grow up? You know, it's like archaeological layers. That's what's interesting to me and makes someone more realistic. I also think if you do loads of research, you might use none of it none of it might actually turn up but um it just means you write with more confidence what the library has been completely brilliant for is if your brain is feeling a bit tired of sitting there thinking thinking just staring into space trying to work out why these characters won't work 
you get up and wander around, and this is how I got one of my favourite characters in my last book, but one, the wildflowers, is this archaeologist who's in Baghdad in the 30s, and she a great excavator of Nimrud and Nineveh which at the time were being wrecked by ISIS when I was writing it and um, I've always been obsessed with them you can see the kind of gates of the these ancient um, kingdoms in the British Museum and all the stuff that you learn about in school like the Romans and the Greeks but you don't learn about the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they seem to me to have a much kind of bigger empire and be kind of fascinating like all this incredible stuff and it's much more monumental and who were these people and I just went for a walk one day and I found a book on a Syrian I can't remember what it was but it was like a series of panels and then just all about the history of it and I thought oh she'd be that kind of archaeologist so your mind is as free as it wants to be and you're all yeah, and you're in this library <laughs> and you haven't gone anywhere but you've gone to these incredible places and I love that so when you're researching your books and you're getting deeply involved with them um, can you describe that process a little bit more for us yeah it's like um, sort of walking farther and further down a path I think of it like that for me I have to be so immersed in the world that I'm writing about and I have to be it's a, a love affair I mean I feel kind of bereft when I finish the books especially this last one I felt really um sad to be leaving them behind and I didn't want to give the book to the editor and I remember when I was a secretary in my first publishing job I an author came in and the editor was talking to her and I was just kind of hoping the secretary sort of shuffling papers in the background pretending to be all important and um and she starts talking about the book and the editor asked her about a question about one of the characters. And she was like, I know, wasn't that so like her? I mean, I was just like, why are you doing that? And I remember thinking, that is the most vomitous thing I've ever heard. Like, why are you talking about your characters if you're real? I'm like rolling my eyes at the other secretary at the desk next to me. And now I do really, I sympathise with her. I know that that's true. They are really real to me. And I think if you, I've been in the library very late at night and that sort of, that peculiar energy of loads and loads of books being around you, some of which haven't been opened for 50 years. You sometimes open a book and it hasn't been taken out since 1960. And that that feeling that kind of comes over you of the idea of all these stories just sort of slightly humming, very slightly like the, the prophecies in the Harry Potter, you know, um, there's just this t kind of total silence and you know that there's all these worlds waiting to be explored, I find spine-tinglingly exciting. And that's what I'm always trying to do, that you open the book and you are taken into a very, very specific world. And it doesn't have to be like a very exciting one, like Narnia or, um, you know, Gone with the Wind or whatever, just something really difficult. It just has to be totally believable. So even if it's, I'm writing a book at the moment where there will be a house and there's lots of stuff about bees in it and it's quite a weird house. But the thing I'm most excited about is the flat that one of the people lives in because I really, it's where quite a lot of important things in the book take place and it's a very ordinary flat. But I want it to be her world. She sort of made it into her own little. And so for me to be able to understand that, I need to, you know, so I'll look at William Morris fabric to make sure, you know, she's got quite a lot of worn inherited furniture. So I'll make sure I've got the right stuff so I can look that up here. I'll probably thumb through a few, you know, country living magazines. That's what I love, the idea that it's all 
just within your reach here. And if you're going to make people believe in it, as I was saying earlier, a lot of it has to be that you do loads of research about stuff that seems unimportant, but that you will eventually leave out. But it just means that your world is totally believable to you. So it's like sensory deprivation. You're just in that world and you can see what she'd be picking up, what she'd be eating, how she moves, everything. The next book is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. So is that one you read again more recently or what point in your life were you in? I read it when I was 22. It is my favourite book. It's just my favourite book, hands down. And it's really weird, but its weirdness is, um, isn't is that visible because it's also very sort of eccentric English, shambolic, rambling house, castle, rich Americans, English village, the English countryside. Dodie Smith wrote it after her husband. She'd been a great kind of store of the London theatrical scene. She'd had all these plays put on that were hugely successful as a young, really quite young female playwright and was quite a rarity for that. She'd married a guy she'd met in Heels. And you can still see the black cat on the staircase in Heels that I think she put there. Um, the furniture store in Tottenham Court Road. She's mm. very kind of London, London. And her husband was a conscientious objector and didn't want to fight in the Second World War. And they went to California. And she wrote... I capture the castle there and I think you can tell when you know that and you reread it that it is a book written by someone who's not in England and is incredibly nostalgic for it because it's got this sort of goldeny hue of great sort of affection for English things and that's not my favourite part of it what is my favourite part of it is how really weird parts of it are that it doesn't really have an ending it ends with this girl just repeating a line over and over again it's almost like she's gone mad and you can discuss the ending for a really long time it's also got a lot of stuff about the role of of women and and romance it's just really romantic and they both really fall in love she and her sister but also how irresponsible her father and stepmother are and what family life is. And you grow up now, and, you know, everyone has to have um, food on the table. And they are kind of middle class and quite sort of raffish and bohemian, but they literally don't know when the next meal's coming from. And it's just, again, that thing of a totally different world. You just leap into this world. And the first line is, I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. And that's like one of the great lines of any book opener. Um, I just, I just adore it. I adore everything about it. Coming a little bit more up to date, I, I don't know at what point in your life you might have read your next book, The Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Well, Elizabeth Jane Howard, um, reading her really it sort of blew my mind because my boss at Penguin gave them to me and an author, a brilliant author called Robin Sisman, sent me one of her books. And it's a sort of sense of older women saying to younger women, why haven't you read these? These books are great. And um, The Light Years is the first in the quartet of books. Actually, she wrote a later one, but they were, to start with, a quartet of books called The Cazalet Chronicles. Um, and it's about this middle-class family in the lead-up to the Second World War, and they have houses in Notting Hill and a main house um, in the Sussex countryside, and it's this big, sprawling family. And they're all really quite screwed up in various different ways, and it's quite autobiographical. And they are so precisely, beautifully written, and insanely gripping and about women's lives families marriage these dastardly husbands these awful wives 
just generational stuff that is gripping. It's like a soap opera. And it really confused me because here she was, the last one was just being published and people were saying she should be shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I remember an article in the bookseller and I was like, no, 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 these are worthless books by a woman that have like painted covers. They look like Joanna Trollope. And of course now, A, I think, why hasn't Joanna Trollope been shortlisted for the Booker Prize? Because she's flipping brilliant. And B... Elizabeth Jane Howard, like the long view, a lot of people think it's Hilary Mantel's favourite novel. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of people think she's so seriously undervalued. And she's married to Kingsley Amis. Kingsley Amis is the one who got all the plaudits, and she never did. And it was a really interesting sort of world opener for me because I read it, and it's a, it's a kind of saga, modern day saga. And I, and I was kind of like, but those books aren't allowed to have critical recognition. They should just be like holiday home shelf books. But yet they're so good. This is so good. It's so well done. It's so, the writing is so crisp. The characterisation is so good. And the stuff that's drawn from real life is, and there are moments where your jaw drops to the floor and there's some incredibly upsetting, really disturbing moments. Um, And heartbreaking and romantic and very clever. She just constantly shifts the ground it's on. Also, being able to control and contain all that material, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. She absolutely brought it home. Some of my favourite characters in literature are in it. And it's really funny that now we live in this world with things like Persephone books and a general sort of um, the conversation shifting a little bit. The people are like, yeah, Elizabeth Jane Howard was one of the greatest novelists of the last century. She should be given more recognition. But I... I do remember reading them thinking, I've never read anything like this. I can't remember ever enjoying a book so much. You just, oh, you just start them and just can't stop reading them. What makes a good book? I mean, we could sit and discuss that till the cows come home. But I've always found that really funny, that I would be given a manuscript by our literary counterparts when I was at Penguin, and they'd say, this one isn't for us. We think it's for you. And it's basically because it was quite a bad book. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd think, oh, well, they'll want to publish it. And I'd be like, no, Mm. we publish really good books that have more ripping things or more you know and that and this is this was the first of the conundrum sort of set set that off in my mind that I'd be like good books can also and they sold really well she outsold you know she still sells absolutely loads when was it you realized that you could do this you were you were were reading as an enthusiast Mm. in your Mm. younger years you had obviously you had people around you in the literary world but Mm. uh, you, you went into the literary world reading books editing and so on but did you at what point did you think, do you know what, I can do this? I always wrote and I always, um, you know, had ideas for books. Again, because I said earlier I was allowed to, I felt that that was something people did. Um, uh, but I wasn't interested in my parents' jobs at all. I just thought, I was a teenager, I just thought they were the most boring people in the entire world. I didn't say, Mum, tell me about the netbook agreement. I just couldn't have cared less. <laughs> um, and then I left university with no clue of what to do and a friend of a friend told me about some jobs that were going at a publisher and at, at a pub one evening. I didn't know her super well and we then became really good friends and I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it. And... Over the years, and I started writing again, and it was at the height of kind of the chick-lit mania, and books were selling for vast amounts of money, and these journalists were kind of churning out these books, some of which were brill, and some of which were not very good. And this book, I won't say what it was, but it was by a quite society girl person. It sold for a vast amount of money. We were sent it, another part of the company was sent it, and I read it and thought it was absolutely terrible, and it went for loads of money. And it had been the fourth one where I thought, this is crap excuse my French and I could do better than this I could do better than this 
And I was talking to a friend of mine in the office and I said I could do better than this. And it was making me quite bitter. I was becoming quite a bitter. I was an editor. I was just becoming, and I'm an enthusiast. I want to be kind of up mm. about stuff. But um, I, was, I was just like, this is really rubbish. And, she, and, you know, I could do better than that. And she said, yeah, you can. So why don't you? She was actually quite hard with me. Why don't you? Like, just take responsibility for it. And so I went away and, and started writing it. And I had an old laptop. I'd had glandular fever. And they'd given me a laptop to work at home. And I turned on the... I wrote about 30,000 words of this novel. And I turned on the computer one morning and the whole thing had gone. The hard drive had corrupted oh, or no, something. No, no, And I'm always telling people the story. And people always say, um, and had you backed it up? And I'm like, why would I be telling you this story? That's just been written. Yeah, I had. And then, and then we went on. <laughs> and it really made me decide... I kept thinking that's a sign, that's a sign. You know, when you're very low and your confidence is very low about anything in your life, that's a sign. You take everything. Oh, there's a magpie. You know, you never notice the two other magpies going past. And then I thought, oh, but I really do want to write. I don't ca- I do want to write and I don't care if I've lost it. What am I going to do? It just wouldn't go away, this thought. I really, no, I am. I want to be a writer. And I went to Dixon's on the Strand, opposite Penguin, one lunchtime. I crept in, making sure no one could see me, because I was mortified, I was paranoid anyone would find out. I crept in, and I bought, by now, pay a year later, a laptop they had a special offer on, and it was 800 quid. And I was an editor, I was earning really not that much. And I didn't have 800 quid, and I had a year. And that put the pressure on. You know, I was like, yeah, okay, at the end of this, you're going to have to have not physically have 800 quid but you have to have got somewhere with that and in a year I'd rewritten it it was way better because I'd lost the whole thing so it's made me very free and easy about junking whole bits of my book it was a much better book it was more focused it was tighter and I had this sort of sense of yeah you have to keep going with this so I'd finally plucked up courage to approach an agent even me who work with agents all the time who should have the confidence to know go for an agent that took me months to be like you know and 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 that's what and and that's where I went from there but yeah, it's all, all for a reason, I think. Persuasion by Jane Austen. Now, there are so many um, great uh, Jane Austen books and you've chosen Persuasion. So why in particular that one? Well, I am old. I'm 45. And I forget how when you're compiling a list of books that have meant a lot to you, how when you're younger, romance and the kind of hit of romance rules your life. I have two children, I'm really tired, I work really hard. I don't go around going, oh, this romantic moment. And when you're younger, you are just always looking for it in various forms, whether it's that you've convinced yourself you're in love with someone or that you know, or that you really feel you're, it's like that. And Persuasion is such a romantic book. And there are, I find romance fascinating because when I was still an editor, I edited a lot of romantic books and we had a romance list and it's so denigrated and people are so rude about it. Um, one, writing a Mills and Boone is actually super hard. You have to stick to rules, but also they have to kind of deliver. And that's having a formula that then delivers. Some of them, you read them, you're like, wow, that was really good. I mean, some of them are not good. Um, but it's also that idea of romance. People are afraid of it. You'll hear people say, oh, man, I could do everything. Like, romance, oh, as if it's the worst thing ever. And I always think of this um, brilliant sort of it defined my entire career moment when I went to see Richard Curtis give a talk on Annie Hall at the BFI before a screening and he said it's really funny people have a go at me about Notting Hill and say it's incredibly silly and over the top and unrealistic that this guy would fall in love with a film star but um, you can watch any day of the week 
on, you know, on the TV a series about a serial killer and, you know, women being chopped up into little bits and thrown in a dumpster, your chances of being... And people say it's gritty and realistic and isn't this, you know... And your chances of being murdered by a serial killer are about one in 16 million. It's just never going to happen. It's actually greater. But as we... And I always remember saying this and the hairs on the back of my neck going on. As we sit here now this very minute there are tens of thousands of people around the world falling in love right now they just are that's what we're meant to do um and one of them might be a famous person falling in love and that's the thing that's seen as really silly and unrealistic and i was like yeah richard yeah, <laughs> yes man and and i think that i think too much i think there's a genderization of stuff where women are pushed towards that too much you want to say get over yourself and that also makes you go for completely unsuitable men who will be horrible to you just don't care so much about it but romantic fiction as something that is powerful is undervalued and I was a bookseller judge at the book I was a judge at the bookseller awards last month and I had to read normal people which we then made the winner and I hadn't read I hadn't read it oh my god it's such a romantic book this is a Sally Rooney book and you know it's the kind of great book of last year and I would submit a lot of the reason people love that book is it is about two people who are they meant for each other are they not um, this boy and girl who grow up to each with each other who are wrong, one's wrong side of the tracks, one's a bit posher. It is so romantic. It's so upsetting and joyous. And it's it's so wonderful, this idea of whether the chemistry can work, whether what separates them is too great to be overcome. And the other book I always think of is Atonement, that, you know, because these are quite literary books, people say, oh, aren't they wonderful? I think the reason they enjoy them is because they make them respond in this way. That atonement is so romantic, you know, the love affair between Cecilia and Robbie is just really, with all its layers of what's real and what isn't, is heartbreaking. And it's the thing that brings us all together. And Persuasion, oh, the letter that he writes her at the end when he says, I am half agony, half hope, you know, dare I hope that these feelings I once had for you um, are the same. I offer you as my heart as much my own as it was eight years ago when you stamped all over it. And he's constantly kind of standing around in doorways looking at her completely longingly. And you're like, yes. Um, but it's also the ultimate triumph of the quiet nobody in the background. It really is a Cinderella story. That she's the most ignored, the most reviled. She seems to be completely boring. And the things that make her in the background this is very powerful to any bookworm, are the very qualities that make her our heroine. We love Anne. Mm. Lizzie Bennett, everyone loves. Lizzie is sparkling. And, you know, Emma Woodhouse, everyone loves. She's at the centre of the action. Anne is always mm. in the background. And and that's why Anne and Captain Wentworth loves her, because he is so great. He can see through that. <laughs> oh, my God, what a great book. <laughs> but it also has a very autumnal quality to it. It was yeah. one of her last books. It's very sad. It's quite realistic about being left on the shelf and what that meant for you as a woman then. And I just, I, I, I just adore it. I love it. Jane Austen suffers slightly, I think, from the fact that she's mostly read by women and, and younger women as well. Mm. Um, and that as a, as a boy growing mm. up and thinking of my son and, and, and others, picking up a Jane Austen might not be a, a natural thing to do. Is mm. that, would you agree with that? I think it's more so now, again, with that kind of the films that came out were all really like rom-commy targeted at women. But if you look sort of 50 years ago, she was treated as a really, you know, as a, 
it's a difficult one because you want as many people as possible to have access to her and read her and enjoy her and see the old books, the good books. And when I was an editor, I reissued all her books with um, much younger, more joyous covers mm. because the only editions, believe it or not, then, we were the first people to do this, were these Penguin editions with women with incredibly red cheeks and sort of high, like, like lace scarves on their heads who you'd kind of hurry past in the street. And they didn't look like Lizzie Bennett when you think of Jennifer Ely in the... TV adaptation just so joy and joyous and full of life and I think that thing of um it's about women's lives you know um it's, there's no battles um you get the women at home while people are off fighting the Napo- Napoleonic Wars but she's also not fluffy there's just not a lot of people she's really sharp and when you read the letters some of them are really really sharp you know and yeah it is it is a funny thing that you can go through life and meet people and you say have you read the Elena Ferrante have you read Anne Tyler have you read Elizabeth Jane Howard and women will say yeah and men will say no and you think why have you never read Anne Tyler she's like one of the greatest novelists writing today and I think Jane Austen's the same but you know you do you that's my saying for 2019 you do you there's quite a few examples in literature aren't there of of, um, female writers actually writing under a male pseudonym yeah um yeah. carries on today in fact yeah. doesn't it um yeah book covers as well yeah. uh, as you mentioned doing the jane austen ones mm. um i think that uh when i read <laughs> harry potter as an adult yeah. i probably chose the i did choose the the adult version of the cover yeah and, yeah, yeah. and to read you know joanna rowling as jk rowling yeah. which at, at the time yeah i suppose not everyone might have known that it was uh no. it was joanna rowling so i mean i suppose these things are, are going on all the time but do, yeah. you, do you think there's more that can be done to encourage this sort of um cross promotion of books across the genders i think it's a really fundamental thing of um if you bring up boys thinking that you know, they mustn't watch Disney films. Girls experience both sides of culture. So girls go off and do princessy stuff. But in the world we live in now, if you dare to say to a girl that she can't be the most super empowered thing in the entire world, people are constantly buying for my daughters. A hundred women who changed history. You know, here's a woman who is a a rocket scientist and they're terrified. They're like, oh my God, here's a woman who saved the world by being, they're like, oh my God, you know, they just want to lie around watching Moana for the 50th time. But again, Moana, she's, you know, she fights these gods. She's incredible. Um, but if you were to dare to say to any little girl now, you can't be super empowered, you'd be locked up in prison or hauled off by a mob. So I feel I feel happy for my girls. I think that they'll have that going forward. I feel worried for boys because there's still this thing where I see it a lot that um, boys are terrified to experience, experience female culture because they're afraid they'll be beaten up or duffed stuffed up you know and a lot of boys and a lot of their mothers actually won't let them you know they say oh no no he, he won't enjoy frozen frozen's really bloody good you should watch frozen man it's a really great film but also if you go through life only ever expe- having experienced entirely male culture when you get to university you will not be able or whatever or you leave or you go to school with older girls you will not be able to talk to those girls just give it a go <laughs> give it a go <laughs> you know and that's that's the weird thing i i feel i think it's I think it's something about the way we bring up boys that makes me sad, you know, that that, that needs looking at. Girls are constantly, you can walk down the street in, you know, all in black and grey. You can wear rainbow colours. You can wear whatever you want. We as, you know, and if you'd walked in today, if I'd walked in, say, in a sequin jumpsuit, you go, it's a bit out there, but that's fine. She can wear what she wants. If you'd walked in as one, we'd be like, has Philip had a nervous breakdown? You know, that's, that's sad <laughs> for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel sorry for you. I'm being silly, but you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. We, we contain boys much more than we do girls now. It's, um, yeah, and, and, that, and that, that makes me sad. Mm. Well, thank you ever so much. That's wonderful. Thank you for bringing such a, a, a great selection of books to us. Well, and thank you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking about them and talking about your work. And I look forward to seeing you in the library a lot more and reading absolutely. your next book. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thanks, Philip. Thank you for listening. And to find out more about the London Library, please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk. Please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe.